I want to um, talk with you for a few moments about grace, uh, God's grace. And I, this is a fantastic subject. Um, I always look forward to preaching, but this morning I have a double dose of looking forward to preaching because this is a great subject. I hope I can do it, some small measure of justice. Uh, our theme this morning is the most glorious, important, amazing theme that any preacher could take up. Um, just to be clear, we're not talking about what you do when you put your hands together and pray before you have a meal. Sometimes we talk about saying grace. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about a certain kind of feminine elegance. You know, she breathed into the room with great grace. We're speaking about God's grace. And I want to um, give you uh, a definition, and it's very simple. Um, when we talk about God's grace, we're really talking about the undeserved kindness of God. That's what we're talking about. This is a Bible word. I think many people who are not so familiar with the Bible would be familiar with this word. Um, we sing uh, songs like Amazing Grace. There was even a film a couple of years ago about William Wilberforce called Amazing Grace, a great hymn written by John Newton. Um, but this is what we think about. Grace is the undeserved kindness of God. There's a lovely uh, part of the Bible uh, in the New Testament in a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. And in that first chapter, he talks about the fact that God has lavished upon us his grace. And there's something within this word about unbridled generosity. And I, I, I hope by the end of this morning that you'll be able to appreciate, uh, maybe more than you did when you came in, Something of the infinite, extravagant, even scandalous generosity of the God uh, who we love and worship. There are many attributes of God that we could think about. Uh, we've been doing that as we've been going through different parts of the Bible. But God, the grace of God is the crowning glory of God's whole character. We can talk about his love and justice, his faithfulness, his eternal nature... But the grace of God is the thing that crowns everything else. I remember, I've said this to some of you before, I remember, well I was asked on the radio, wasn't I? Wasn't that guy quite uh, rude on the radio when, he, when he, he was asking about me and Jane meeting on the beach in Landudno? He implied, he implied certain things happened that didn't happen. But I, I, I met Jane when I was 15 on a beach mission in Landudno. And, uh, and I remember they, they used to do open airs on the prom on Landudno, big wide prom. And the guy was asking Jane and some other friends from Liverpool, and I'll never forget hearing these girls talk about the difference between grace and mercy in their kind of high-pitched Scouse accents. And the idea was, I, can I, I don't know if I could do it, I was saying to Jane yesterday, I remember this, grace is when you do get what you don't deserve. <laughs> and mercy <laughs> is when you don't get what you do deserve. <laughs> and I always remember that definition. Do you get that? God's mercy is when he doesn't give you what you do deserve. He's merciful to you. God's grace is when God gives to you what you don't deserve. And you remember that now in a Scouse accent. Grace is when you do get what you don't deserve and mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. You can think about that over your Sunday lunch. This idea of grace can be twisted from both sides. Let me just uh, pause and reflect on this with you before we get into four simple points from the passage. There are two reasons why grace is hard for us to grasp and this is the first one. One of the reasons that we find it very hard to accept God's grace or even understand it is because this world operates on a system of merit. Doesn't it? 
Even children at school. If you want to get a good job, you need to pass your exams. And you do. That's a good thing. When you get to work, if you work hard, your boss will be pleased. You might get a promotion. The whole thing, sporting world, it's all about achievement, merit, attainment. A plus, A star, B plus, C minus, whatever it is. It's all about attaining merit. When you think about religion, all the religions in the world operate on that same principle. God is a God to be impressed. More than impressed, he's, he's actually a God to be, what's the word? He, he's angry with us and we need to work hard to impress him so that he'll be pleased with us. So even religion works on a system of merit. If you do this, God will love you. If you don't do these things, God will not love you. It's all about merit, merit, merit. I think almost everyone thinks that way. Everyone, even, even when we think about religion, even people who understand that that's not the way that Christian works, that it's almost like a default setting that we work on this principle of merit. If I don't do this, God will somehow hate me. If I do do this, God will love me. Even as Christians, we can fall into a trap of thinking that religion or relationship with God works on merit. That's one thing. On the other hand, here's another reason why we find grace hard to grasp. It is hard for us to grasp because it sounds like sin doesn't matter. That's the other end of the spectrum, isn't it? Completely. When we talk about grace, this is what we might think. If God is a forgiving God, if God is a generous God and a kind God to people who don't deserve it, then surely it doesn't matter how I then live. I can just go ahead and not have to worry about being responsible or accountable. I've got a ticket to heaven in my back pocket and I'm sorted. It's alright for me. God's been gracious to me. And grace is kind of turned into a license to just sin all the more. Can you see those two ways that grace is twisted? We find it hard to understand because we live by merit. And, we, and, and if, we, if we get that right, we flip over and we start to think, well, if God's gracious, it doesn't really matter how we live. One of the reasons I've been drawn to Titus as a whole, one of the reasons we've done this series is because of this very passage. This is, this is one of the great passages in the whole Bible. And Paul here, he, he, he gives us a definition of grace that smashes those two um, corrupt versions of grace. He deals with this and he deals with this and he shows us what God's grace really is. And um, I'm excited to to try and open that up uh, to you. We read Ben Ben read in English, which is good, from verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. I think I've only got four points. I've got about 200 sub-points under each one. But I've only got four points. <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. I've got four points, and this is the first one. Grace changes everything. Many people claim to have answers, don't they, to the problems that we see all around us in society. Uh, We live now, as we were talking about last week, in this great age of technology, which in many ways makes it even worse because everyone's got an opinion and they can blog them and post them on the internet. And the, the information that we're bombarded with is scary, isn't it? There are so many voices. There is there's so much noise. 
There are so many things that clamour for our attention. But in the end, the most important question that we can ask is, what does God think? What does God think? What will God do? What's God's opinion? Never mind the opinions of men. What's, what does God think? In, in Genesis, when it talks about God creating the world, one of the very striking things about Genesis chapter 1 is that it says, every time God created something, it says, and God saw what he'd made, and he made a value judgment on it, and what did he say? It was good. When he created people, it actually says, God saw what he'd made, and it was very good. The thing that's striking about that is that God makes value judgments. He sees things, and he weighs things, and he has an opinion on things. And what he thinks counts, doesn't it? Do you ever stop to think about that? God could say, I've had enough. I, I'm, I'm sick of this world. War, famine, greediness, selfishness, unfaithfulness. I'm fed up with a lot of you. God could. He could. And he, and he would be just and fair to do it. He could just abandon us to our stupid, fruitless efforts to find fulfilment outside of him. But this isn't the God of the Bible. The one thing that changes everything is that in the heart of God, there is this great fountain of something called grace. The God of the Bible is awesome, eternal, the creator, the sovereign Lord and king over everything that he's made. There is no one who ultimately can defeat him or conquer him or overpower or control him. He is gloriously able to rule over all things according to his wisdom, despite the best efforts of devils and men to shake their fist in his face. But do you know what the best thing about God is? It is that he is not a selfish tyrant. He isn't some kind of vain monster of a dictator. He has in his great and infinite heart grace. That changes everything. Just step back with me to think about this letter that Paul writes to Titus. I want you, Titus, to stay in Crete. Paul's gone. And I want you to establish effective churches in Crete. The culture's in a mess, just like ours is. The church is a bit dysfunctional, just like many of ours are. And Paul tells him to teach people how to live lives that are godly. But somehow, it, it, put, this letter isn't Paul saying to Titus, listen, try, tell them to try harder. Tell them to pull their socks up and behave themselves. Verse 11 is a key verse, not just in Titus, but in the whole Bible. Because after telling Titus what to teach, there's that little word at the beginning of verse 11, for... Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, You must teach what's in accordance with sound doctrine. Teach this, teach this, teach this, teach this, teach this. Why? Because the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. Grace changes everything. The thing that will change people's lives and hearts and destinies, the thing that will change the direction of families and towns and villages and cities and cultures is not politics or education or better organisation. It is not a stick and it's not a carrot. The thing that changes everything is the fact that God is gracious. It doesn't start with them trying harder and it doesn't start with you. It starts in God's heart with the fact that he has 
grace. Sometimes we can fall into the trap of thinking that what, what we need to do is try our best and then God's grace fills in all the bits that we can't do. But that isn't the Bible's teaching. Everything, everything that is good will trace its roots back to the grace that exists in God's heart. Salvation is possible. Change is possible. Living a new life is possible. Why? Because God is a God who is kind to people who don't deserve his kindness. And we've seen this over and over again in Titus. There is something going on here that is outside of you and me. The thing that is the root and source and ground and beginning of all of this change is grace. One writer said this about religion. The religions of the world are built on fear. Anybody who studies world religion knows that the primarily compelling issue in religion is fear. That is to say, the sinner has a deity or deities, a god or gods, and somehow he has to placate their hostility. These gods are angry when they are violated, they are vengeful when they are offended. And so in the religions that men invent, there is always this desperate need to procreate an angry deity. The sinner who has violated his God seeks to mitigate somehow the God's animosity towards him to assuage the wrath of this uncompassionate, unfeeling, insensitive deity who can only live with his own offences and cares little or nothing for others. Christianity is not that. Because it begins, it continues, it starts and finishes with the grace that is in God's heart. God is a generous God who is kind to people who don't deserve it. Isn't that great news to hear? Well, let me explore this with you. Grace changes everything, first of all, because it brings salvation. That's what... Paul says to Titus in verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It's appeared. That's an encouraging word, isn't it? For starters, the grace of God has appeared. It wasn't visible before, but now it's crystal clear. The Greek word behind that is a very positive word it's the kind of word that you would use for the announcement of a great victory you know the general who's been fighting in a battle and we don't know how it's gone and he suddenly appears and we realise we've won the light suddenly appearing in the darkness you know it strikes me uh, sometimes that as human beings we, we're all looking and longing and yearning for happiness, fulfilment, security, peace. And you know what the problem is sometimes? We're like blind men who are stumbling around looking for a drink when the well is right there in front of us. It's almost like we keep tripping over it. And we can't really see that the answer to all of our need is right there staring us in the face. The grace of God has appeared. God has always been full of grace. But it wasn't always clear. There was a time when we could have hoped for it and maybe wanted it to be true. But now there is no doubt about it. Grace has appeared. And it's appeared in the most tangible way. Because it's not an idea, but a person. Paul explains here that grace is most clearly seen in the person of Jesus and what he has done. Um, 
I, I can read to you, but if, if you want to turn to it, just keep your finger in Titus and just go back to the previous letter to Timothy. It's just the one before Titus. And chapter 1. And, uh, and verse 8, Paul is speaking to another colleague, not Titus, Timothy this time. And he says in verse 8, Don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me as prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life not because of anything we have done but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel I was appointed a herald. I wish we had time to look at that passage as well. That's, that, what, what he's linking there is this idea of grace and Jesus. This was God's plan from before the world was even created. That Jesus would come. Because God is gracious. To show kindness to people who don't deserve it. In our growth group on Thursday we were thinking about John chapter 1. And in John chapter 1 there it talks about Jesus coming into the world. And and John says we've received one blessing after another. It's almost like John's almost saying, stop giving, I I haven't got arms big enough to take all the stuff that you want to give me. That that was John's sense as a disciple. God has, this is not me trying to impress God. God, because he has grace in his heart, is like a fountain that overflows with blessing after blessing after blessing. I remember as a child watching that programme, Crackerjack. Did you ever see that? Some of you younger ones won't know. It's five to five. It's Friday. It's time for Crackerjack. You're all too young, aren't you? And uh, one of the quizzes they used to do on there, they used to load presents onto a child. But, but every now and again, they would give them a cabbage. <laughs> and, and the idea was that the, the child could keep everything they could hold. And these kids are there with presents and scale electrics and cabbages. And they just couldn't... The grace of God has been revealed. It's appeared. Jesus has come. It's not an idea, but a person. And can I say this as well? It's effective. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. God's grace is not just God being nice, it isn't just sentimental. Like God sits in the sky somewhere and saying, all the best. This is not wishful thinking or some kind of platitude. No, no, no. The grace of God achieves something. It accomplishes something. It comes to bring life where there's death, light where there's darkness... Peace where there's despair. Joy where there's misery. Goodness where things have been rotten and corrupt. What word does Paul use here? The grace of God brings salvation. What a word that is. Jesus comes into the world to bring salvation. He comes because God is kind to sinners who don't deserve anything. And God comes... To rescue them and save them. God is not waiting for you to pass a test. Or to attain some great and mysterious level of merit. He isn't waiting for you to save yourself. He isn't waiting for you to save anyone else. God's grace brings salvation to you. I want to make sure that we've got this the right way around. 
Why do Christians keep banging on all the time about being saved? What is that all about? One of the great problems that we face, you know, is if we're going to understand salvation and grace, we need to be able, like a good doctor, to diagnose what the problem is to start with, don't we? You know, if, you, if you're really ill and you go to a doctor and he gets the stethoscope out and he says, you're absolutely fine, when actually there's an insidious disease raging within your body, there's no way that you're going to get good treatment if the diagnosis is not accurate. The Bible explains to us fairly bluntly and ruthlessly what our true condition really is. What we really need is not someone to give us a better self-esteem. What we need to hear is what God thinks, don't we? The Bible says that we as human beings are sinners. In Romans chapter 3 it says there's no difference all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're rebels against God. We're guilty. We're culpable. And the issue for us is that there's a separation between God, our Creator, and us as sinful human beings. We, we, we actually have God's condemnation hanging over our heads and there's nothing that we can do to put that right why does Jesus even bother to come into the world did he just come to teach us he didn't just come to teach us he did come to do that the reason Jesus came was because the grace of God was appearing that brings salvation Jesus was born to die he lived the life that we could never live. And he dies the death that we deserve. Jesus deals with our failure. He takes away our guilt. He soothes our fear. He overcomes the separation. Sometimes I like to think of it that if you think of a great gulf between God and mankind... And Jesus lifted up to die on a cross. Jesus is the one who can hold God's hand and hold your hand and bring the two together. He takes the condemnation that was hanging over us and he lets it fall on him. He himself bore our sins. Paul says it here. Just look with me again at Titus, verse 14. He speaks of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Do you understand that? That when Jesus comes to die, he's thinking about you. He gave himself for you, for us. He lays down his life. He isn't dying because he's a sinner. He's dying because we're sinners. And so, because of grace, Jesus comes to save us from sin, from death, from hell, from being separated from God forever. Jesus comes to save us from that destiny. So grace means that we can be cleansed, forgiven, we can be made right, we can be delivered, and we can be reassured that God loves us. This is a great word here, isn't it, that Paul's using. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It begins in God's heart, not in yours or mine. But it delivers a real benefit. 
can I some of you here are Christian believers and you, you understand this but can I just drive this home just before we move on to the next point you, you as a Christian believer understand that God has saved you but somehow some of you are now wait, thinking that God is waiting for you somehow to come up to scratch it's like you know that you're in God's family but somehow you feel that you're at the bottom of the pile you understood at the beginning that there was nothing you could do to save yourself but then somehow you've got confused and think that now it's all down to you and not down to him my concern here is that you instinctively feel that you must surely do something that thought is an enemy of grace because grace is a gift that begins in God's heart Christ has come to make you his child he could not love you any more than he does and nothing you can do or nothing you don't do can change your status with him you can't make yourself any more acceptable to God than you are because of Jesus can you? Let's remember that grace changes everything because grace brings salvation. But let me, um, let me give you a third point here. That this grace doesn't just bring salvation. Part of that salvation is that this grace changes lives. We touched on it at the beginning, didn't we? One of the great fallacies of anti-Christian thinking is that somehow grace means that how we live doesn't matter God forgives sin, so it doesn't matter whether I sin or not. In fact, Christianity is brilliant, because I can sin as much as I like and keep getting forgiven. Tim, do you want to have a word? Too late. The alarm clock must have gone off too late. Next week, guys. Maybe the clock's went forward. Can I say this? Paul here, he says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live godly lives. I've said this to you many times. The grace of God is not just designed to let you off the grace of God is designed to lift you up it is not just about forgiveness or as some theologians speak it's not just about pardon it is about power a Christian believer should never say I can't because through God's grace you absolutely can some people I talk to seem to think that the gospel is good they find the message of the gospel compelling and they feel oh I would so love to believe I'd so love for this gospel to be mine Sometimes this is true of men. And the thing that holds them back, that this is something that people tell me, the thing that holds them back is this idea, I'll never be able to keep it up. I, I, I love the gospel. I understand that Jesus died to save me. But if I became a Christian, I would never be able to keep it up. Listen. Tell, tell me something I don't know. <laughs> what makes you think that you can't keep it up? The burden for keeping it up is not on your shoulders as though it is a test to pass. It is possible for you to keep it up because the grace of God works in you to transform you and change you. The reason that you can keep going is not somehow because you're doing it, 
but because God is working in you to do it. The grace of God brings salvation and it teaches you also to change from the inside out. The word that Paul uses here for teach, where is it? It, it, Verse 12, it teaches us. There's a few things going on here. The word for teach, you could use the word train there. It, It represents the idea of education, mentoring, a gradual process of learning and going in a particular direction. He's not talking about someone becoming perfect overnight like that. That isn't the case. The grace of God appears to save us and then to transform us. That's a process. And the Greek has this idea of being continuous. It's, it's an ongoing process. The grace of God, it, teaches, it keeps on teaching us to keep on saying no to ungodliness and to keep on living self-controlled, upright and God life. So you get the idea. Sometimes in our English grammar, we don't get the tenses that you get in the Greek. This is a kind of continuous process that's going on. Grace, listen, grace will save you from the penalty of your sin. But grace also will deliver you from the power of your sin. It isn't just about forgiveness, it's about transformation. And what does Paul say to Titus? Well, there's positives and negatives, isn't there? This grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. This grace of God will teach us and it will keep teaching us to avoid thinking in the same way that this world thinks. The grace of God will protect you from that and it will will teach you to think in a godly way and not a worldly way. But on the positive side, he says, this grace will teach you to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. The word behind the word self-control is the word sensible. Grace will teach you to live a life that is not reckless or foolish or giddy or impetuous. The grace of God will teach you and it will keep teaching you to live a life that is sensible and wholesome and good. What a fantastic thing that this grace exists in God's heart. That he gives it to people who don't deserve it, who can't earn it. And it saves them and it transforms them. Also, this grace of God speaks of hope. Paul says in verse 12, this is all happening while we live now. Here we are in Rotherham. 2011. This is the present age that we live in. And what are we doing? Well, as Christians, we're looking back to Jesus coming into the world to bring salvation. We're looking back to a crucified Saviour. We're looking back to a Saviour who has taken all of our sin and guilt and it's all been laid on his shoulders. And we can look back there and we can put our faith in Jesus. But we're also, Paul says, looking forward. As we live in this present age, we're looking forward, we're waiting for Jesus to come again. The glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. One of the great issues, I think, that we face as human beings is a fear of the future, isn't it? The Bible even talks about people being afraid of death. Some people try to tell us there's nothing after death. When you're dead, you're dead. But somehow, we don't feel that, do we, in our spirit? Somehow, we feel that there must be more. And the gospel has this element in it of being able to look to the future, not with fear, but with hope. Gee, it's all about Jesus. We sang it. In one of those songs, what number was it? 65? Um, was it 65? Oh my soul, yeah. 
The last verse there. Then one day I'll see him as he sees me. Face to face. The lover and the loved. No more words. The longing will be over. There with my precious Jesus. What a great hope. The gospel brings to us. Well. Grace changes everything. It brings salvation. It transforms life. I just want to. Rolled off with with just some thoughts on the fact that this grace centres on Jesus. We've touched on this already, and I, I just want to be really simple. And then we've got two applications. Grace centres on Jesus for this reason. Listen, grace is free. God is kind to you, even though you don't deserve it. But it was not free for Jesus. It's free for you, but it cost Jesus his life to purchase salvation for you. Jesus is the one who gave not lots of money, not an angel, not a couple of mountains and some nice lakes. Jesus comes into the world and he gives himself for you it's free but think of what it cost him I've told you the story before of a minister who was trying to explain this to a friend and they came into the church and it just so happened in that church there was a big cross on the wall and the, man, the preacher said to the man, his friend, you see that cross? That's what Jesus did for you. And the man said, I couldn't care less. And as those words came out of his mouth, it dawned on him what the cross really meant. And it brought a tear to his eye. And he looked again at the preacher's friend and he said, I'm sorry. Actually, I couldn't care more. When we appreciate what it cost Jesus, that, that, that's, that's the first step, isn't it? In, in appreciating the salvation that Jesus has come to bring. He gave himself for you. It is all about Jesus. The second reason why I'm going to say that it is all about Jesus is, look what it says in verse 14 he gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own grace centers on Jesus in this sense Jesus comes into the world to save people and so that they will belong to him they, they will be his people. Do you know, you, you can be English, French, Chinese. You can be all kinds of different nationalities. But something is going on here in God's world. Jesus comes into the world and he dies to bring salvation for all people, whatever tribe and nation language they're from. What Jesus is actually doing is creating a new nation that transcends all the other nations it's a nation of people who belong to him. That's why we're known as Christians. We belong to Jesus. Do you think of your Christian life like that? You belong to Jesus. Listen, we as a group of Christians belong to Jesus. The thing that unites us is not that we all like the same cereal or that we all like the same sport, or that we all wear the same clothes. The thing that unites us is that we all trust in the same Saviour. We're all different. But we've all come to Christ in the same way. Jesus is the Saviour. We belong to Him. And I want to say that it's this that produces eagerness. A people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. A Christian believer will be zealous to do good, 
not because he has to, not because he must, not because he thinks he's better than other people, not because he thinks he's somehow got to impress God with all his good behaviour. He does it because he's a sinner who's been saved. He's humble because he knows he doesn't deserve it. He knows he can never earn it. But he's confident too because he's assured in his heart that God loves him and has been gracious to him. What an amazing thing the gospel is. It makes you humble without being a worm and it makes you confident without being arrogant because it depends on grace. It's not religion, it's grace. And it all centres on Jesus. That, that is what would establish an effective church in Crete. And it's grace that will establish an effective church here. It begins and ends with God, not with me. It's God. God reaching out to people by his grace. What should our response be uh, to this then? I just want to give two applications and then we're done. Did I get them here? My first one is this. Your good behaviour or good works cannot save you. But they will be the fruit of a salvation that has been given to you. Do you get that? Your good behaviour, it can't save you. But it will be there as the fruit of your being saved. When God touches your life, you'll be conscious that you need a saviour. You'll realise your own sinfulness. And God's grace will lead you to Jesus. To embrace him as your saviour. You individually coming to Jesus and saying, I'm sorry. Thank you for dying for me. But that same grace will also teach you and train you to be saying no to worldly desires and saying yes more and more to godliness grace will lead you to love Jesus and to long for him to come again grace will strengthen you to live as a new person with a new hope in this world this is my point there were people in Crete who were claiming to be Christians but none of that was true for them they were living ungodly lives So the challenge here is that if grace changes lives and there's no evidence of a change in your life, how can you say that you know God's grace? One writer said this, God is a saving God and the major message that he wants to communicate to the world is that he can save. And the way he communicates that is to demonstrate it through people who have been saved. And if saved people don't live like saved people, then God is not getting his message across. That sounds pretty clear to me. These people in Crete were claiming one thing and living another. Did they know God's grace? No. This is part of God's strategy To reach the world, he saves people and changes them. And other people go, wow, the gospel works. Look at the change in this person's life. They couldn't have done that on their own. God has done that. Is that true? For you. Your good works will never save you, but they will be the fruit of a changed life. And the the last application really... For some of you, this will be all new. You've heard these words before, but maybe they strike you this morning with fresh force. My question to you is, do you believe in God's grace? This gospel is amazing. It is truthful. It gets right underneath our need. And I I want to say to you this morning, there are three things here. The first thing is, you need to be honest about your own condition. 
the beginning of becoming a Christian is agreeing that what God says about you is true. And when God says, you are not what you ought, you ought to be, the beginning of becoming a Christian is to say, yes, I know. I have to be honest with God. You know, Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in the 1800s. And he, he became a Christian in his teens. He became one of the greatest preachers this country's ever known. And this is the way Spurgeon put it. He said, you need to understand that the rope is around your neck. You need to understand that there is condemnation hanging over you. You need to understand your need for a saviour. The second element though is not just honesty but faith. What you need to appreciate then, if you understand the sickness, you need to go to where the medicine is, don't you? To go to Jesus, to receive him, to embrace him, to believe him, to trust him. Can Jesus save you? Yes, he can. Do you believe him? I hope you do. And the third element, I think, honesty, faith, and choice. Is there that sense in your heart of, I, I, I want to follow Christ. I want to rely on God's grace. I want to live my life with his help and strength flowing through me. That's what I mean when I say do believe. I don't just mean have you ticked a box in your head. But have you been honest about your true condition? Are you trusting in Jesus? And have you made that decision to follow him? If you haven't done that before, you can do it now. Do you know what it says in the Bible? That when a sinner repents, there's a party in heaven. The angels in heaven rejoice over every single individual person who comes to terms with this and turns from sin to Jesus. Could that be you today? Could you kick off a party in heaven today by saying, yes, Jesus, I'm trusting in you. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Or may it appear here, even in our own hearts, to his praise. Amen.